Choosing the wrong people to help you heal from childhood trauma is ironically a very traumatized person thing to do. A bad therapist or coach or just one who's not a fit for you can take you down the road to reactivating your trauma and even making it worse. And meanwhile, nothing in your life is getting better. You've maybe been through this, where you show up every week and you work really hard, but you're wondering the whole time, like, why do I still feel sad and stuck? Why is nothing getting better? I'm Anna Runkle, also known as the Crappy Childhood Fairy, and this week on Ask the Fairy, I wanna to read to you a letter from a woman who I'll call Carmen, and I picked her letter because I think there are a lot of people out there who just like her, have stuck it out with therapists who just weren't helping them, all right? So here's her letter. Hi, I've been in therapy the past year with a counselor who I believed would be helping me with progression to become healthy. However, some red flags have come up and I've noticed that they've been setbacks. Some comments that she made have included saying I would miss her until the next session or complimenting me on my dress and saying that I wore it for her. Hmm. Now she's invited me to a session of going running while doing EMDR, four question marks. She's usually friendly, but she seemed disturbed on our last visit, and I asked if everything was okay, and it's understandable that she wouldn't want to spill her personal issues on me as a client, but she seemed mentally preoccupied, and as she talked to me, she peered out the window and was distant and not personable, which was how she'd always been before. I felt like all the times my mom was upset with me when I was seven years old, and I didn't know why, afraid, not accepted, confused, and my trust was shaken. I understand how transference and countertransference can affect the therapeutic alliance, but a therapist should understand how this can be harmful and make adjustments or refer out. I don't feel safe now because her compliments seem odd. I overlooked them in the past, but together with her other behaviors, she seems moody and unstable to me. I feel like I need to find another therapist. What are your thoughts? And she says, P.S. I'm going to grad school to become a therapist and work in behavioral health. I would never behave the way she does because I understand ethical boundaries and I wanna be psychologically fit before I become a professional helper. Please help. All right, thank you, Carmen. This is a great letter and a great opportunity for us to talk about crap fit. Now, for those of you who don't know my word crap fit, this is a word I made up for the way that those of us who grew up with abuse and neglect as kids sometimes become too good at fitting ourselves to a person or a situation that's completely unacceptable. And the clue for me is that as a student, you feel there are ethical boundaries and that she's not keeping them. And so I would just say that if your therapist has lost trust, lost your trust because of ethical boundary violations, it actually is time to go could be time to report somebody. I'm not really sure if any of this is reportable stuff. It's just stuff that made you feel weird and uncomfortable. And you're, you yourself said you feel like you need to change. So I just wanted to get that out up front. Yeah, this does not sound like a good fit. But I also wanna talk about, for the benefit of all of us, how do you know when somebody's not a good fit? What are some of the signs, right? Now, I'm a little bit biased. I'm not somebody who has benefited from professional therapy in the past. I tried a lot of it. It, it didn't tend to go anywhere with me, but I know that for a lot of people, they have found a really good fit for what they're working on and what the therapist can provide. And anybody who does therapy really should seek that type of connection where it does work. You do feel like it's helping you and not just like on some promise of like a year from now, but like you start feeling better a little bit 
each time you see them, right? And that you have actionable steps. So let's talk about some of the things that you can use as an indicator that this is not a good fit. All right, number one, they seem disinterested in you or they can't remember the details of your life or what you even talked about last week. This is kind of a no-brainer. What you're paying for in therapy is to get assistance from somebody who pays attention to who you are and what the struggle is right now. And if they're too busy or too burdened or too distracted to do that, that really would be a pretty easy criteria to say you haven't found a fit. All right. Number two, they make you feel dependent on them, sort of like a child is dependent on a parent, or probably more accurately, they allow you to attach to them in this manner, and it makes you feel increasingly helpless. I think there is a such thing as an attachment that feels like child-parent that can be constructive, but constructive means it feels healthy, you're not stuck in that role, you can kind of come in and out, you can observe when you're sort of feeling like you're in a child role with them. Um, call it what you will, transference, counter-transference. If it's making you feel helpless and stuck in your therapy, it's probably not a fit, all right? The third reason a therapist might not be a fit is they feed your anger instead of showing you the path of progress. Now, anger feels like healing at first. Self-pity feels like that at first too. And this is sometimes a strategy employed by people who don't actually know how to help someone to get free of trauma. It is easy to help someone, somebody get angry and upset. And I think sometimes you can over-romanticize those states of emotion as so therapeutic, but just being angry, just expressing a bunch of anger does not have a very good track record of helping people get all the way healed. It can be a way to get up from depression you know, you have depression down here, up here is anger, right? Maybe, maybe depression, self-pity, anger, and that anger, it feels very powerful. It feels like a lot is happening and it might be important to get in touch, but, but to really heal, you have to go up from there. And not everybody knows how to help somebody actually get free. A lot of people know how to help you get angry. Hardly anybody knows how to help you get free. So hold out for that. Hold out for people who can actually help you process and integrate that and get free of it so that you can move on and, and not be angry anymore and start to be more fulfilled and pursuing the things that you want to do in your life. That really needs to be the goal. Number four is they try to convince you that the reason when you feel worse and worse instead of better after a whole series of visits is because they say it's going to take a really long time to feel better. All right, a lot of people will say that. And it's true that there's a such thing as long-term healing, but actually for any kind of therapy or treatment to be sustainable, it needs to give you a bit of relief like every time you do it. It needs to feel good. It needs to feel uh, like there's hope and progress from, what, from the work that you're doing. If you're doing something and it's just upsetting you and tearing you down and tearing you down, it's probably not a good fit, no matter what they say about it. So look for a therapist who actually has both long-term strategies and short-term tactics to help you stay strong, keep your chin up, keep functioning in your life while you go through the therapy process. Number five is they push ideas about how healing works that simply feel wrong to you. Now, different people have different ideas about how that is. You need to remain sovereign to your healing so that you can decide, you know what? When, you're, when somebody's trying to help you and you're sitting there and you're like, this doesn't feel right, I don't feel good about this, this feels stupid, unsafe, um, like a bad idea, <laughs> manipulative. If you're feeling that, 
even if they're actually perfectly good therapists, it may not be a fit. It, it, it's so important that you have trust right there, all right? Number six, they get up into your sad story like it's so interesting, all right? Like it's like your past with all the trauma in it is fascinating and you get the sense that they're feeding off of your story and suffering like, well, it's something that I call, forgive me, it's vulgar, but I call it trauma porn, you know, and then this happened and you wouldn't believe what my parents did then and then blah, blah, blah. So when you feel encouraged and rewarded, when you find yet more and more awful stories of the past, um, just so that you can get attention or feel like you are getting to something substantial in the session, it's not a good path. Not all healing depends on getting into terrible stories. The terrible stories, there's a time and a place when they need to be told, but the healing part that follows that is about the good stories, about the positive vision of where you're going, about what is going to work for you to calm your symptoms and make progress from day to day, all right? Number seven, a red flag is, as a result of the direction that you're going with a given therapy, more than one of your friends express the fact that they're worried about you, all right? Has this ever happened to you? And you find yourself hiding what you're actually doing. Now, occasionally people get mixed up with um, cults, very negative or exploitative individuals. And what that would look like is when you talk about what you're doing, first people would say, oh, that sounds great. But as they hear more details about what you're doing, they express concern. Now, I know that some friends and family members it's one of the ways of sabotaging other people that they just express concern about everything. I call it care shaming. So you need discernment about this. But when you've gotten mixed up in something that's negative or unhealthy for you, that is one of the signs is that people will tell you that they're concerned and you will find yourself wanting to um, not mention it or even lie about what you're actually doing because you're afraid of their judgment. That is a red flag to look at. All right, uh, another thing is when you feel like your therapist is labeling or misdiagnosing you, that is something to take seriously. There is such a thing as misdiagnosis. And while there is also such a thing as somebody who's in denial about their condition, if you're going to be sovereign over your own healing, it's time for you to do your own research and try to look accurately. Like what is this label or diagnosis they're laying on me? Why or why not? You can ask questions about that. Why do you say that? What criteria do you have for that? <laughs> Get a second opinion if you don't trust it. Something to keep in mind about diagnosis is that large scale studies have shown that the way that professionals diagnose mental health problems is so uneven. Different people will diagnose differently. And when it gets to the point when they then recommend treatment, then it's so different as to almost be meaningless. And so there's great value to be gotten from working with professionals, but you've got to keep your thinking cap. You've got to stay senior to the whole situation so that you can determine if you think that someone is going down a bad road with you. Somebody just asked me about this the other day. They were working with a therapist who insisted they had dissociative identity disorder and said, and they said, I don't, and the person who contacted me said, I don't think so. You know, I certainly don't have any sense of there being like alters, they call them alters, like alter egos, alter personalities. I don't have that. And the therapist promised they would show up soon. Okay, big red flag, big red flag. If somebody's sort of like speculating based on no evidence at all. So that would be something to either simply get out or get a second opinion if you need help around that. Um, another thing to watch out for is if it's all talk 
and they don't seem to have any knowledge or advice on what to actually do. And that's not all that uncommon. When you need help solving life's problems, it's part talk and very much action. And so look for people who have proposed actions to suggest to you. Finally, the overarching criteria for deciding if a therapist is a fit for you is just to ask yourself, do you feel they get you? Now, you know what it's like with people in your life. Many people don't get you at all. Some only kind of get you and maybe one or two, three people like really, really get you. So a therapist who's pretty close to on the getting you scale is going to be the best one for you. If you're going there every week and you're just feeling like, oh, they don't get it. They don't understand. They're projecting on me. They're labeling their, me. They're misdiagnosing. Yeah, it's, it's time to move on. Don't give up on your healing, but keep looking for somebody who's right for you. And that's the thing about CPTSD. We just turn around and blame ourselves for things. But listen to yourself on this one. It's so important that you feel understood, heard, and safe with a therapist. So those are some tips you can use. Therapists are miracle workers sometimes, and it's easy when you undergo a remarkable healing to put your therapist up on a pedestal and fall into belief that they healed you and that you depend on them to stay healed. But you know what? When a therapist lets you down or even betrays you, you don't want to have your whole healed identity totally attached to that one person. When you heal, it's so important to take credit for your healing, to own it, so that no matter what anyone else does, they can't take your healing with them. It's important to remember that therapists are human and they sometimes make mistakes. They're vulnerable to the same pressures as anyone. And although their license means that they're expected to adhere to a really high ethical standard, it's always possible, it's rare, but it's possible that a therapist will outright abuse a client's trust. Now I got a letter last week from a woman I'll call Susan and she says, my sister had an affair with my ex-therapist and it is affecting my marriage and I'm not sure why. All right, this is what Susan says. I saw a therapist for five and a half years. He treated me for intimate trauma and other types of childhood trauma. I think that's referring to sexual abuse. I made a ton of progress with him and was able to get married and help create a healthy marriage dynamic with a stable, loving man. Yay. About a year ago, my sister told me she had started receiving therapy from my therapist, and this made me very uncomfortable as I didn't want her to know what I was being treated for. Though I love her, she's a manipulative and verbally abusive person, not emotionally safe, and it made me nervous that she was in his practice. I had a bad feeling about it. I circle here some stuff I want to come back to when I read the letter again, so just making notes to myself. All right. Turns out my feeling was correct. They ended up having an emotional affair followed by a physical affair. It lasted a few months. She told me and I totally dissociated. The volume of the cry that came out of me when she told me surprised me. It sounded like a small child crying, not like me. She wanted to process everything about the affair with me. When I let her, it would just send me into a tailspin. A couple days after talking with her about it, I would dissociate, cry, pick wild fights with my husband, threaten divorce, you name it. As soon as I was told of the affair, I never scheduled another appointment with my therapist. 
I'm sad to say that my sister divorced her husband after the affair, despite the fact that the therapist had blocked her on every front and told her he could never see her again. She's uprooted herself and her kids from a beautiful home and an emotionally and financially stable situation. It is so strange to watch her reenact the trauma we went through together as children. She told me I was selfish for not being her go-to person for processing this experience and that I was not a very good sister. She thinks it's ridiculous that I have a problem with what they did. She has berated me for asking her repeatedly not to talk about the affair or the therapist around me and says, I have major issues if it's that much of a trigger. I have only recently seen the depths of emotional abuse she dishes out to me and others. I'm angry with her, but at the same time, I miss her. I'm grieving. Her husband is wonderful. He isn't perfect, but is probably the most emotionally stable person I've ever met. She said she doesn't emotionally connect with him and never has, but she did with her married therapist who talked bad about his wife and then discarded my sister after his needs were met. She never said a bad word about her husband before the affair, but now she has launched a smear campaign against him. He's a good person who doesn't deserve this. I don't mean to make this about me, but this has been heart-wrenching for me. My therapist was the first man I ever trusted. I told him everything that had ever happened to me. I know he was my therapist and not my friend, but I feel betrayed by them both. I wish my sister had had the sense to not see the same therapist as me. I wish he had had the sense not to counsel her. My question is why is this affecting how I interact with my husband? It never fails that after I break my own boundary and talk with my sister, she brings up her love for this man. I have asked her dozens of times to not mention him to me. She refuses. She's committed to dishonoring my conversational boundaries. I feel re-traumatized after talking with her and go into fight mode, sometimes telling my husband I need to leave him because I'm too messed up to be married or something. Both of us are confused as to why I have these reactions to her. It's like I can't fully separate myself from her. She told me what she was experiencing didn't feel real unless she could share it with me. That statement freaked me out. In the past, that would have flattered me, but at this point, it just pushed me further away. Sadly, I've blocked my sister on the phone and on social media because she can't not talk about the therapist she is having a fantasy relationship with and that she left her husband for. I hope to one day be able to be around her some and not get triggered when she talks about him. By the way, our mom, who I love and adore, has been married four times in my lifetime. No doubt this is playing into my feelings about all this. I love my husband dearly and I wanna stay married. I wanna stop threatening divorce as my go-to coping mechanism after getting triggered by this affair situation. I never ever wanted to hurt him and I'm sorry that I sometimes do. I want to have better control over my words and not sabotage my relationship when I'm triggered. I'd like to understand more about why I'm acting, how I'm acting under the circumstances. All right, Susan, thank you for this letter. I applaud your goals for this, of trying to stop taking this out on your husband. So uh, I'm going to read through your letter again and see if we can unpack a little bit, a few answers or a little bit of insight about what's going on here with you. All right, so you say, your sister has had an affair with your ex-therapist and it's affecting your marriage. And you don't know why. You saw the therapist for five and a half years. That's a pretty deep relationship. And he treated you for sexual abuse. 
in that you made a ton of progress. You were able to get married and help create a healthy marriage dynamic with this good man who is your husband now. About a year ago, your sister tells you that she's seeing your ex-therapist for therapy, and that already made you feel uncomfortable. You didn't want her to know what you were there about. Sounds like your boundaries, you know, right away, there's a theme going through this about boundaries. You're doing a really good job of knowing where your boundaries ought to be, and like everybody with childhood trauma, it's a struggle sometimes to sort of stand up for them, but I think you've got this. I actually think you've got this. I like what you're doing. I think you get it. You say you love her, but she's a manipulative and verbally abusive person. I gotta say, I see what you're saying. She is manipulative and verbally abusive. She's not emotionally safe, and it made you nervous that she was there. I don't blame you. Um, you know, <laughs> it's incredible the capacity that we have as people who, you know, this is a case of sibling abuse. That's a thing, sibling abuse. And the, our capacity to still love somebody and to still keep showing up for more the way that some of us do for parents sometimes, even when the person's been abusive. And I'm sorry, what she's doing here is just so abusive. It is so selfish, self-centered, cruel, unreasonable, and just devastating. This, this way that she's just sort of like flying out of her life and hurting you. I mean, who's left? Who's left for her? Then you said, turns out your feeling was correct. Okay, good. You have good, good instincts here. They ended up having an emotional affair, then a physical one, and it lasted a few months. All right, so I think you know, but it's not really reflected in here. That is a grave breach of professional ethics for a therapist. Seeing your sister and having an affair with her and, oh, and all her feelings of trying to tear you down and put you down, he had to have been hearing that. It's just, you know, I started this out just pointing out, look, therapists are people. And so often um, I hear from people who are hurt because for much lesser things even. This is, I mean, this is just pure breach of ethics. If you chose to, you could report him and uh, he might lose his license for something like this. It's terrible behavior. It's like the cardinal rule of something a therapist must never do. So that said, I'm also just gonna say, because the thing I want you to take away from this is, sometimes broken people are the ones who help us. Sometimes that's who it was. Some messed up person with poor boundaries who can't defend themselves their wife, you, the client, or the client in your sister, who can't hold up any of that because of human weakness, sometimes they're the person who helped you. So you got some help. But I want you to remember that you're the one who healed. So as your therapist sort of falls apart and tumbles down and goes through a phase of life that's gonna be sad and hard and probably costly uh, financially, professionally to his marriage, you are in a good marriage. You are in a good place, all right? So I don't know, I'm not a therapist, and so I'm not gonna try to analyze like why it is that this is getting taken out on your husband, but this is, this is my guess, is that you, your happy ability to be able to have a good relationship you thought came from this person who turns out to be completely messed up, maybe more messed up than you were even when you showed up on the door there. And this happens sometimes. I'm just gonna say this happens sometimes. And I'm gonna just try to validate, you have built a good relationship and you do not have to sabotage it in order to let in what has happened, to let in the, the terrible surprise of who your sister really is and who this therapist really is. Okay, that, that's them, it's not you. 
Somebody taught me a technique once when you get very upset about something that has happened to another person or that another person has done is you just say to yourself five things that are different about you from that person. So you can be, well, I have a good marriage. I uh, did not have an affair. I am wanting to continue my marriage. You know, and go through five things that you're listing that are just different. You just talk into your brain, just going, but that's not me. I don't have to identify with anything that these two people are doing. And you get to stay in this good life. It's a really big deal for a person who was abused as a kid to land in a healthy, happy marriage. And it can be a very long road and it can be tempting to self-sabotage and weird parts of trauma can come up and be hard to, like they just, it just comes up as like resistance and unreasonableness or lashing out. And I totally understand, but what you said here in your own letter, you are so right. You, you got to stop. Stop taking it out on your husband. That even if you didn't want to be with your husband, and I know you didn't say that, but even if you didn't want to be with your husband, you don't want to be the person who takes out all this hurt and anger and confusion on him, right? Everybody knows what that's like to do it. Everybody knows that it's a bad thing to do. And you know, and I know that you can actually stop. And I'll give you some tips on how to do that at the end here. It bothered me that your sister told you that you were selfish for not being her go-to person for processing this experience and that you're not a good person and it's ridiculous that you have a problem with this and that she doesn't even feel real unless she's telling you about this stuff. That... I'm not a therapist, so I'm not going to label it, but that is really characteristic of some personality disorders. I think that's what you might be dealing with in this person. And I love that you love your sister despite all of it. That is so beautiful. But you blocking your sister sounds super sane. And if it takes a couple years or more, I think that's okay. I would, I would 100% put your marriage first. She's not demonstrated that she should be in your life and you get to take space from that. And if something changes with her and she'd like to talk to you, you can you know, possibly make room for that in your life. But I'm really gonna urge you, Susan, put your marriage first, put your marriage first. Step away from the craziness here. Don't let it taint you or your perception or the way that you treat the people who are good to you. All right. So yes, it's emotional abuse. You are now seeing the depths of it, so at least you can be grateful. And I get that you're grieving because it is sad. It's sad what you're losing is the idea of your sister or maybe who she once was to you or who you hoped she would be in your life. And I understand, I know how that is. Okay, so you say her husband is wonderful. So I, I'm not even gonna touch that. I'm gonna just take your word for it and say he's great. He doesn't deserve this. She never said a bad word about him before the affair, but now it's a smear campaign against him. I mean, who does that? Who launches a smear campaign? You know who. It's people with certain personality disorders do it. I'm really sorry that's happening in your family and that's going to make it really complicated to have a relationship with your brother-in-law with this going on, but I know you'll figure that out. Put your marriage first, okay? So then you say, I don't mean to make this about me. Susan, make it about you. <laughs> I'm telling you to make it about you. Don't let it be about them. The thing about people with this type of behavior is, I always say it, it's like a campfire in the living room. They have a way of just sort of like destroying everything and capturing the attention of everyone and everybody's attention is all sucked into it and not on their own lives. 
And you and your life are totally important right now. And all the energy that goes into, you know, trying to cope with her, respond to her, reason with her, heal up from the damage that's being done, all of that energy, that, that, that energy needs to come right back into you. You get to heal yourself, all right? You've come this far. You get to do that. You absolutely deserve to take your attention off of this person and give it all to yourself. Um, you said you met, you asked your sister dozens of times not to talk about this stuff. She refuses. She's committed to dishonoring your conversational boundaries. And uh, I think you know this because you ended up blocking her. But the only person who can dishonor your conversational boundaries ultimately is you. Because when people won't honor what you say, when you, you are totally within your rights to say, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about your affair with my ex-therapist, you're saying, or with your brother, you know, cheating on your brother-in-law. You don't want to talk about it. That's fair. That's within your rights. So if she can't honor that and you stay in the relationship, I'm just saying, you know, tough love. That's you not honoring your conversational boundaries. You know it screws you up, and I don't blame you. It gets you all dysregulated. You dissociate for a few days. You know, if you go and dissociate for a long time, that is so costly to your life. The momentum that you're building up, whatever you're working on, the relationships, the career m movements, the, the mental health that you're building up, like when you get all dissociated, that's like somebody just takes your Lego structure and smashes it on the ground. So you don't want to do things that cause that to happen. Once you know what causes that, it's time for you to have a boundary about that. So I just really want to support you and validate you that just staying away from this relationship sounds really good and healthy for you. So then you get this weird idea that you're the one too messed up to be married or something. And I think that that, I, you know what, I know what you're talking about, the way that sometimes what you really are seeing about somebody else, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's denial or projection, but you're projecting it on yourself that you're too messed up to be married. And you're not, all right? You're not. You're having an understandable trauma reaction to somebody being abusive and really destructive within your family and within the people you know. So you've blocked her on social media and you let me know that your mom has been married four times. So I could see how that's a fear that, that one or both of you would end up with sort of the same fate of not being able to have a stable relationship. So then you say you love your husband, you want to stay married, and you want to stop threatening divorce as a go-to coping mechanism after getting triggered by this situation. All right, so here's, here's what I'm going to teach you how to do. You just, you've got to draw a bottom line and say, I will not threaten divorce on my husband. Now, let's just say, hypothetically, there came a day when you absolutely knew that you must get divorced. The only time you ever need to discuss that is when you are actually going out the door and serving the papers. You are capable of refraining from threatening divorce against your husband, okay? I speculate that one of the functions of you saying that is to get some relief, that you just need a little bit of escape from the intensity while whatever's happening, the projection, the anger, the confusion about what's happening, that you're just trying to get a little space from the whole thing. That's, that's my guess. I could be wrong, all right? but but. I'm going to guess that what you need is to give yourself space when you have that feeling before the words come out of your mouth. So you, you need a little air and oxygen. One of the things you can literally do when you have that thought is go stand outside. Just go stand outside. Remind yourself, I'm not going to say those words. I'm going to go deal with this feeling and realize that this feeling needs, 
it needs to get out. And there's, there's a few things you can do. So there's, first you take time and you do that without making your husband feel that you're threatening or abandoning him. You can just say, you know what? I'm having an intense feeling right now. I need to take a 10 minute break. Can I meet you back here in 10 minutes? And wherever you are, if you're at a store, if you're in the middle of a conversation, uh, if you can ask nicely and make a time to come back, you can almost always get cooperation from another person without threatening them or making them fear abandonment. You don't wanna do that. If, you're, if you keep using abandonment um, as a, as a, either because you can't control it or because it's manipulative, I'm not saying it is, but whatever your motives are for threatening abandonment, it's emotional abuse. So, so that's just, it's just coming off the table. No more threatening, all right? You take a break by asking for a break and giving a time when you're gonna come back. While you're taking a break, you can do some physical things that help you get your nervous system back because basically that need to run away, you're, you're kind of off in a state. And what you wanna do is just come back into your body. You can sit in a chair and go, okay, I feel the weight in my chair, I feel it. You can press your tongue to the back of your teeth and just feel like your mouth is a, the inside of your mouth is a place that feels like yourself. And so you just give yourself a sensation there. You could bite a lemon, a, uh, something with an intense sour flavor can kind of help bring you back into your senses. So you're not just like flying off into escape land or that's it, I gotta leave this situation. You're just giving yourself sensations to bring yourself back into just kind of a grounded physical awareness, out of dissociation, back into reality, groundedness into your body. They call that like leaving your body or coming or getting back in your body. And it's a figure of speech. We're not really ever leaving our body, right? But, <laughs> but we're back in and you're feeling yourself. You can use hot water, cold water on your hands. You can do a whole shower if you want, a hot shower, a cold shower. You can alternate. You can sort of jolt yourself into feeling yourself. Well, I'm telling you, by the time you stepped away and had a hot shower and a cold shower, that impulse to run away from your marriage will have found its outlet. On a more steady basis, you can use my daily practice. That is a really powerful way to just keep channeling out the rough feelings that come up as a result of, having, of being alive, you know, just having a life, but especially if you had childhood trauma. So this is a place, it's a specific technique you can use to get fearful and resentful thoughts on paper, ask for them to be removed and then rest your mind in meditation. So you can keep coming back to a refreshed and lucid, sane place. Not to say that you're insane, but it's not a sane moment when we're having that impulse to fight or flee. That's the fight or flight response, right? And you're saying you're having both. You know, you wanna get into a big fight with him or you wanna leave. So all of that can be expressed on paper. You can have a rest and you can come back and be yourself and just be more with your actual intentions, which as you state very, very clearly and credibly here that you want it to work it out. You do love him. He's a good guy. So I wish you luck with this. As much as I don't like getting hate mail, sometimes I have to tell the truth about how I healed from the severe symptoms of childhood PTSD. And in some people's book, I did it wrong, namely because I abandoned talk therapy. And even just a few years ago, this was an unthinkable thing to say. People called me stupid, uneducated, selfish, misguided, greedy, irresponsible. They even called me dangerous. But since then, maybe accelerated by the pandemic and all the problems that that made worse in people, 
Huge numbers of medical and mental health professionals have come around to listen and learn from the conversation happening here at Crappy Childhood Ferry. Not just the videos I make where I teach how I healed, but the comments where thousands and thousands of people like you share their knowledge and experience having CPTSD, what it's like to get stuck, what it's like to get unstuck and feel better. So here I'm sharing the video that was my opening salvo early in crappy childhood fairy history called Why I Quit Therapy. Something that people say all the time when you tell them you're struggling with depression or stress or your relationship, they say that you should go talk to someone or they say you should find a good therapist. Well, for me, talk therapy, even with good therapists, did more harm than good. And even though there are hundreds of therapists who come to this channel or my courses, I'm friends with many of them. I respect the work they're doing. I'm glad they're out there helping people. I want to tell you why therapy didn't work for me. And I've mentioned this on the channel before, and I got some really angry comments from a few people, but I got about 20 times more appreciative comments because my experience is very similar to what a lot of people with past trauma go through when they try to do the normal thing that is recommended that you do, go talk to a therapist. And it needs to be okay to talk honestly about this. So I wanna tell you wh why I quit therapy. And while this is not to say, I think you should quit therapy, I wish that I'd quit it years before I did. And I really couldn't until I had something else in place that worked better for me. So I'm going to talk about what that was too, what did work, because on a practical level, I really did need support and help. So first, if you're in therapy and it helps you, you have my 100% encouragement. Just keep doing that. I've known many, many people who find therapy to be positive and transformative. It's a place of healing for them. They love their therapists so much they can't imagine how anyone could have a different experience. Well, I wanted that positive experience, but what I got was something different. And now I know why, and it makes total sense. But I didn't know why back then, and it was crushing me. It made me feel so broken and alone, the way everyone just assumes, oh, it's so great, talk therapy, I love it, you know, it's so helpful. And it just wasn't for me. So here's how the story started. My aunt and uncle paid for me to go to my first therapy visit when I was 14. I was having a really hard time and my dad was dying at the time. He had ALS and I was really struggling and they sent me and I just remember it felt really yucky. I felt really judged. Um, I got very upset. I tried to hide how upset I was. And the way that that felt yucky is very similar to the way that I felt yucky every time I ever tried therapy over the next couple of decades. Now, all in all, I saw 11 different therapists and several of them for a year or more. I really gave it an honest try. I did a lot of research. I talked to people about who's good. Some of them were, you know, they were like professors and institutions that are very esteemed. And a couple of them turned out to be, you know, really capable people. All of them were well-trained. All of them were kind. All of them were sincere in their willingness to hang in there with me. Two of the therapists, and this was, you know, maybe like five years ago or a little more, I scheduled appointments for EMDR and then um, a very famous professional in the field of CPTSD to get some advice for this channel. And those were the only two who I ever talked to who really knew anything about complex PTSD and how to handle it and how it works. And this makes sense because the science about CPTSD really wasn't out yet. It hasn't been out long. It's still not really well 
you know, distributed among therapists and clinicians out there. But even when I went to see the experts in the field, talking with them about my trauma was a really miserable experience for me. In, in both cases, it cost me about three days of any ability to focus or work or express myself clearly, either speaking or writing. That's how much talk therapy negatively affects me. So there's a word for what happens to me when I talk about traumatic experiences. It's called dysregulation. It's a brain and nervous system sort of state where brain waves and body rhythms, they just get really like warped. They get screechy and warped. They get out of sync. They get irregular. And in some cases, this disrupts physiological and cognitive processes too. Now I talk a lot about dysregulation in a lot of my other videos. I have a playlist all about it. I have a whole online course about it. It appears in all my online courses. It's a big thing of how I understood what was actually wrong with me. But just in case you're new to my channel or this concept, I'll just say that when I'm dysregulated, it can feel like sensory overload, or sometimes it can feel like just like nothing, very flat, very blank. So I get numb and clumsy. I have trouble stringing words together when I'm dysregulated. My handwriting changes. And if people ask me a whole bunch of questions really fast, I will just get completely overwhelmed. I'll have to like leave the room. If I'm asked to talk about hard things that happened in the past, I feel like I want to talk about it. It's like attractive to do that. But very soon after I begin my ability to be present or focused, it just flies out the window. So I've often described it being dysregulated, like, like wearing headphones with really loud, chaotic music just blasting in my ears. And then I'm trying to pretend that I'm right here and everything's fine. And oh yeah, I can hear you, but I can't. It's, you know, it's like really overriding my senses, but almost all my energy and focus goes into acting normal in those situations. So it's really difficult. I used to think everybody felt this way when they went to therapy. And I was told, you know, when I'd say, yeah, God, you know, I'm really stressed out. My heart's pounding. I can't think they go. Yeah, it, it tends to, it can sometimes feel worse before it feels better. And so I'd come in with some normal size life challenge. And within the course of the hour, I would just kind of deteriorate into confusion and crying. Everything would feel much worse. And I'd be a wreck for days. And then the next week I'd come back and by then I was composed and I'd say, yep, I felt better and I was felt hopeful and I'd try to continue the conversation. And by the end of the hour, it'd be like the headphones again. So I could talk about my feelings, but my feelings would just sort of break loose and scramble everything. And whatever point I was making would get completely lost. I'd feel more and more angry until it felt more like a rant than anything therapeutic. And I would secretly be feeling really defensive because every comment or question began to feel just like bombardment, like getting pecked by birds in the face. And it was too much. <laughs> I was always treated kindly while this went on. And therapists accepted this reaction as me just, you know, like dealing with my stuff. But the life problems that had me seeking therapy, most of them were problems of my own making at that point. I did have a rough childhood, but by the time I was, you know, in my thirties, I was kind of generating the problems. Well, we never got to the point where I got any substantial help with those problems, not even after a year or two years. And this is a slightly different reason why therapy didn't feel helpful to me. We definitely never looked really into my role in my problems. And I had some dramatic childhood trauma and we'd talk on and on about that. 
But the people who did that were dead or not in my life. And in present time, I had problems of my own that were sabotaging my life and hurting other people. And it seemed like there was a big taboo on helping me face these problems, which did turn out to be the real cause of my distress. And the one part of the big mess of past trauma and current problems, you know, where they intersect, they, they get you stuck there. Your underlying complex PTSD and then the problems you're creating, like if you can't break that up, it just goes on and on and you know, you're a runaway train. Usually I just find what people can fix first, it was certainly true for me, is the stuff that I'm doing right now. So Owning my part in all of this was incredibly empowering and healing, but I noticed that therapists would discourage me from going there. I think they thought that I was beating myself up or victim blaming. And there was a lot of encouragement to talk about the wrongs that other people did to me, you know, going on some premise that if I explored these stories enough, some transformation would come about. And I guess, you know, my personal life problems would take care of themselves, but it didn't work that way. It was the opposite. I was drowning in these angry stories. There was nothing to learn from them anymore. Retelling them was totally dysregulating me. So one strategy I had just to try to keep the conversation going towards something that would help me is I started avoiding telling therapists just how badly I was feeling inside. And I felt like I couldn't afford to deal with all their feelings about that and all the, the way they would need me or the way I expected them to need me, you know, to make me talk about that. So I was going to therapy talking about, you know, this level of problem, which was like outside stuff, other people, when really I had this problem down here, feeling really bad about myself. And keep in mind, I would start with every one of these therapists telling the real story where I really was, but it just always seemed like there was this like, you know, sucking noise, this thing that always pulled the focus back to my mom, what happened? And solutions, they would be referenced like, you know, oh, they describe a happy state, but they couldn't tell me how to get there. And I started thinking they might not actually know how to be happy or how to get there from where I was. And I think in some cases that was true. So there was this one period where I was beginning to think seriously that I didn't want to live anymore. And I was not thinking straight, but at the time, I didn't trust that telling a therapist about my dark thoughts would do anything but make things worse for me emotionally. And it's not their fault that I was secretive like that, but in the end, considering what happened when I tried to open up, I just didn't feel safe to be honest with therapists. And that does kind of defeat the purpose. <laughs> so the science of trauma and the signs that the trauma is what's activated in a person, it just wasn't out there yet. I was a classic case, it was very obvious, but it wasn't known. So again, it's not their fault. But I wish those therapists had had future vision so that they could see that, you know, gosh, that talking about traumatic memories on and on like that was not helping me. It was destroying me. I needed another way. So I remember at the end of every session, it was always time to write a check. And no therapist ever seemed to notice how much I struggled to do this one simple thing. You open the checkbook. This is like a thing of the past, but that's how it was then. You write their name, you write the date, you write the amount, you spell out the amount, you sign your name, you tear it out and you give it to them. And my hands would be shaking. My handwriting was illegible. I'd get all discombobulated and get the wrong things on the wrong spaces. I'd have to tear up three or four checks before I could get one right. 
These are classic overt signs of dysregulation. So I didn't know what it was either, but they never said anything. I would feel embarrassed to, you know, to just be such an idiot trying to do something so simple. And I, yeah, I was embarrassed to look like I didn't have it together. But now I just want to go back and hug myself and say, it's okay. When you feel this way after something that's supposed to help you and it's not helping you, it's okay to feel bad. I would feel so bad. I just go out in my car every week and cry and wonder, you know, what is wrong with me? And I, it would sometimes be 45 minutes before I could pull myself together enough to drive. They didn't know. I didn't know. I had childhood PTSD. That's what it was. And just like so many people who have what I have, I was dysregulated. And maybe you have that too. And maybe you're hearing this for the first time. And this is a known thing. It's not just me now. This is real. And if you're identifying, I just hope that you feel the huge, warm wave of relief that I felt when I learned that that's why all this talk therapy never helped me. I did get help, yay. I got help and I recovered. I stumbled on what worked for me and maybe, and I'd really like it if this were the case, I can save you all those years of stumbling so that you can find more quickly the kinds of professional help and self-help that work for you. So I'm going to tell you just so you know what worked for me. And I teach this in my online courses if you want the full story and to be walked through it. But in a nutshell, I was able to process my trauma through techniques that didn't require telling stories. I'll tell you this, the smaller one first. There are two. And then the really big one. The smaller, quicker solution that helped me was EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And that's a technique considered legitimate and effective for many people, not everybody. And it can help to change the triggered reaction that you get to traumatic memories. When I tried it, my practitioner didn't make me tell the stories. He said, think of the traumatic memory, what you saw, what happened, you thinking about it, okay. And then we proceeded without me ever having to tell the details of that memory at all. And it worked. I mean, it worked like mad. It worked in one session. Did you know that? EMDR doesn't require you to talk about hard things at all. It can work anyway. Some practitioners will try to make you talk, but if you're like me, you might want to find one that doesn't make you describe it. You just can think of it. So that's cool. So the second thing, the, the big thing, is that I lucked into the writing technique that's part of the daily practice that I teach. It's a free online course. I talk about it all the time. I always put a link to it. It's on the free tools page of my website. The free tools page is linked in the description section. The daily practice course itself is linked in the description section. I try to make it really easy to find. And the woman who showed it to me, she told me, she said, write your fears and resentments on paper. And this is a very specific technique. And she said, then follow it with a simple restful meditation. She said, do this twice a day, morning and evening, and then periodically call her and read to her what I wrote. So I did. And that's a whole nother story. If you take the free course, I tell you the whole backstory on how I found this, what happened. Okay. So I could write about my trauma, no problem. And it turns out I could read what I wrote also with no problem. So I was able to share what was hurting me without having to just tell stories. And when I called her, she'd say, did you write today? And she'd make me just read, not tell her off the top of my head what was on my mind. Now, she, she didn't know about trauma then either. She was doing this for other reasons. We just knew that it, it was incredibly helpful. 
Now, there are many reasons why this was brilliant, but especially in my case, it saved me from talking about trauma. Reading to her once in a while and writing my fears and resentments several times a day always made me feel better, more composed, more regulated. Now, remember, I didn't have a name for dysregulation and I didn't even know that I had CPTSD. I thought I was just a problem person. I thought I was just messed up and it would be years before I had words for what the problem was or for the radically healing effect that this technique had on me. But I knew from day one, I wanted to keep doing it. So flash forward to the present. I'm still using these techniques and teaching them to other people. It's the foundation of what I'm doing on my YouTube channel and on my website and in my courses. And at the time that I'm taping this, more than 300,000 people have connected with me to learn it. That is so many. I get literally hundreds of mails and comments every week with expressions of gratitude and amazement, how helpful it is. And I do free calls on Zoom twice a month for anybody who's taken the course and we use the techniques and I answer questions about how to make it work better. And now many of my students, they're teaching others. And like in the membership program that I have, we have peer-led daily practice calls like three, four times a day. It's incredible. So now they're teaching others and answering questions and spreading this wonderful daily practice all over the world. And I can hardly express how happy it makes me just to like witness a another person have that like emergence from their trauma symptoms. I've seen it happen so many times. It is such a joy to witness. And it's always just such a wonderful surprise. Like it really, it really can work. And, and to experience that freedom and to, you know, share that with somebody else, like, yes, it feels so good. And to have your emotions and to have connectedness with other people and clarity in your mind and patience inside and a calmness. And it makes it possible to become who you really are and to pursue anything you want to in your life. It doesn't mean you get it, but you're free to pursue and to cope with whatever may come. It's a tremendous power and freedom. I get a tiny bit of critical mail sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's just regular old hate mail. You know, you go online and people just say things. But I've gotten a few angry mails from therapists saying things like, you should know that people with trauma must only work through these issues in the care of a licensed therapist. And so in case you don't know, I'm not a therapist or doctor. I'm just somebody who, you know, has been showing these techniques to people for 28 years and healing my own self. And I teach what I know and I read books. So I do what I do. But sometimes they say flat out, who do you think you are to try to help people? And uh, they say I'm dangerous. And I feel really confident, you know, that's, that's just not true. I know who I am. Here's who I am. I'm someone who suffered with childhood PTSD to the point that it was life-threatening. And even though conventional methods of treatments didn't work for me, I persevered and I found techniques that do work for me. I experiment. I try many things as new techniques come out. I read. I offer help to other people around the world who relate to my story and ask me. People who feel desperate, those are my people. And I just consider it my mission to just keep teaching people everything I know about how you can calm and heal your symptoms. So to genuinely be helpful to other people, I have to be honest about what it was like before my healing. That's not always been my favorite part. It can feel very exposed sometimes. I talk about what it was like when I tried to heal and how healing ended up happening and it's still happening. Um, I'm not done. No one really ever is. And I talk about how I'm still imperfect now, but 
I'm so much better than I would have settled for back when I had only therapy as a way to deal with what I was going through. I would have settled for 20% as happy as I am right now. Like that would have done the trick back then. And I couldn't even get that. And the end result, which is what we have here, is so much more than some online chat or some blabbing on video. <laughs> if it feels like that to you, I'm sorry. But crappy childhood fairy is so much more than that. It's a place where people from every part of the world come to learn from each other and help each other. It's not just a bunch of videos, it's a movement. It's a revolution. And thankfully, many of the most passionate supporters and contributors of knowledge are therapists and doctors and psychiatrists and social workers and teachers and parents and writers and social media influencers. It's a movement that recognizes healing as the outcome we want, not just treatment, not the preservation of old rules and ideas about who's in charge of healing. I'm in charge of my healing. You are in charge of your healing. We ask professionals for guidance and we ask survivors for guidance. And when it doesn't serve, we try something else. Thank God for everyone who is drawn to this cause into the service of helping one another to heal. I bless the therapist for everything that, that you have tried for dedicating your life to the service of healing, for getting us this far, for being part of everything we're now learning. We're not just victims and we're not just patients or populations or at-risk youth or whatever label denies each of us of the dignity and the individuality and the sovereignty that we each have over our own healing. Whew, I still feel nervous when I hear myself saying the words and telling the truth about how I actually healed from my trauma. It started as a confession of mine here on YouTube, and I was really nervous then when I first put that video out there. Now it feels more like a genuine movement, and there are so many people with me, with professionals and people who seek professional help, people who have professional help. We have doctors, we have people who would never have access to a doctor. We're all here together. We are leaders, we're visionaries, we are warriors for change. It hasn't been good enough, the treatment that's available for trauma. The information has not been accurate enough. It's coming out, but it's not well integrated yet. So we're the pioneers. Those of us who are in this movement all have tremendous potential to be more than we are right now, to find solutions even though things are not totally clear yet. This is a movement to redefine healing from just simply not being depressed so much to a definition of healing that includes the restoration of our intelligence, a definition of healing that includes connection to other people, where that capacity felt like it was permanently damaged before, and a definition of healing that includes the discovery of our real purpose in this world, to become fully ourselves, our real selves, and to bring the gifts that we have into the world where they are so badly needed. That, my friends, is what healing really is. And it is bigger than any of us used to think was possible. But here we are, so many of us are living it. And I am happy and proud to be a voice in this movement. And so if you're still wondering, who the hell do I think I am to say what I say and teach this radical path of healing, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a person who recovered from the symptoms of complex PTSD. That's who I am. And I've devoted my life to teaching other people how to do it too, whether or not they have access to professional help.
People ask me all the time how they can find a good trauma therapist. And all I can tell them is, I don't actually know. So many people who went through trauma when they were kids are still waiting to find real help for the trauma-related problems that are still happening in their lives. And this is not just a tragedy, but it's an injustice. Are you one of the people couldn't find help? I was. I didn't know anything else I could do back then about the intense struggles I was having that I now know were from dysregulation and some other symptoms stemming from trauma in my childhood. I mean, how do you really know who to talk to or what results are reasonable to expect? You hear people say all the time, oh, you know, you should go to therapy, you should talk to someone. It's so awesome, totally changed my life. And you think, I want to find something like that, but where? Should I just go on Yelp? Do I Google it? How do you know who to pick? Because it usually ends up being random. So then you go and you find that you just feel sad or awkward or like it's just not going anywhere. You gotta watch out then because you end up internalizing two negative ideas. One, that therapy doesn't work at all, which is not the case. And two, that you must just be too broken to benefit from the Thing that other people seem to think is so great, and that's probably not right either. I don't think you're too broken to heal, but I think it can be very hard to get matched with someone who really understands you and really understands trauma and has an approach to healing that actually gets in there and makes a difference for you and doesn't leave you feeling like you're an alien or a failure or a bull in a china shop. So how do I know this feeling? Because I've lived it. One of the reasons I set out to learn about how to heal from childhood PTSD is, is because I'm one of those people who totally hit a wall when I was trying to get help the conventional way. Now back then, when very little was known about the effects of early trauma, no one was connecting the you know random symptoms, they seemed random, that I had with trauma. But it turns out my problems were not random, they were common and normal for someone who grew up with abuse and neglect. I couldn't get help from professionals at the time. And if you've taken any of my courses and heard my story, I was lucky enough to figure out an approach that did work for me. But that was after 11 different therapists. So therapy still, by and large, is how our culture supports people who are struggling. It's what insurance covers, if it covers anything. And it can be hard to get an appointment. It can be expensive. It can be hard to get geographically. And when you do get in, it's you know this huge investment to see somebody who you basically know nothing about. And the people who know how to help with CPTSD, they're out there. But the problem is, can they help you? And will you be able to tell this in an initial meeting? So in this video, I want to talk about the qualities that make a good therapist for people with CPTSD. And these are characteristics to look for and questions that you can ask when you're testing out the waters with a new therapist. Now, as it happens, there's an explosion of therapy available online. And there's an explosion of a lot of things online that used to be done face to face. But one place that you can go for online therapy is BetterHelp. You've probably seen their ads on TV, which I think are, are really powerful and accurate. 
And I've got a link to BetterHelp down below in the description section if you want to check them out as a resource for online therapy. I've had a partnership agreement with them for a couple years, and lots of people from this channel have ended up finding help there. Not everybody finds their perfect match, but I'm going to tell you what you can do to fix that so that you can really hone in and find out if a therapy, whether it's through BetterHelp or anywhere, whether it's right for you. So. It's true that something is lost without the face-to-face -face connection, but what's gained by going online for help is the cost comes down a lot. Um, it's a lot easier to set up an initial meeting than when you had to go in in person. And most of all, you have access to so many people out there. They don't have to be in your town. They don't even have to be in your continent anymore. So you have a better chance of finding a trauma-informed therapist who fits you and gets you. Now also, thanks to the internet, there's a lot of transparency now around clinical professionals. And in many cases, you can get online and learn about them through reviews for you know their own bio, but you can also find what other of their clients have said about them before actually reaching out. And that's a big step forward for you. Obviously, what people say about other people on the internet isn't 100% reliable, but it's a lot better than the just like black wall that we've generally had around therapists. There was no way to find out you know, what their track record was. But when you do meet with a therapist, you still have to ask the right questions, all right? So if you have CPTSD and you wanna go the therapy route, I'm gonna really encourage you to find someone who can help you with that, the trauma part of it. Someone who doesn't minimize or misunderstand CPTSD, but who gets it. And so I wanna equip you with the list of things to look for to help you narrow down your choices and find someone who just might hold the key for you to take a very big step in, in your healing. So here are 10 things to look for when choosing a therapist. Number one is they project honesty and confidence rather than people pleasing or vagueness when you ask specific questions about their approach. Some therapists, just like some people, will have a sincere desire to help anyone who asks. And maybe this will be because of financial reasons, or maybe they're, in, they're new in their career and haven't yet figured out what they do best. But the therapist you want isn't afraid to say, you know what, this part is my specialty, but this other thing you're asking about is not. Or you want somebody who can say, you know, trauma isn't something I'm trained in, but I will look into it. So someone willing to learn about, about a new thing is better than somebody who already thinks they know everything and then just sort of like throws it at you and it doesn't feel right. You know, so there's, when you do find a right person, they may very well know a whole lot of stuff and you will recognize, you know, that's how they will present themselves. I know a whole bunch about trauma and you'll give it a try with them and it will feel like, yes, this is a fit. But if it's not, that's what I'm saying. There needs to be open-mindedness and no matter what they've learned about trauma, your case is unique. Your case is you and they need to be open-minded about what you're telling them. Now there are very few checks and balances to keep therapists from making claims that they know everything already. And hardly anyone knows everything. Hardly anyone knows about trauma, really. It's a, it's a very emerging, it's, you know, it's a new thing. It's a new understanding that's coming out and it's really changing everything. So not everybody has caught up. So watch out for that certainty about what trauma is and what you're supposed to do unless they can be specific about what they mean and it fits what you're looking for. All right, the second thing to look for, you want them to be up to date on research outside their traditional therapy circles. 
Ask what their sources are for new information on trauma. If they mention ACEs, Bessel van der Kolk, Pete Walker, those are some sort of major, you know, well-accepted resources for how to understand this. There's a lot of newer stuff. There's stuff outside of that. But just for example, you know, if you read about trauma, you can look for people who have some sort of knowledge about the authors and the and the the principles and the approaches to treatment that have resonated with you so far. You get to ask for that. So look for signs that they're paying attention to the thought leadership that's popular. Now you may have certain modalities you want to ask about. Tapping, somatic experiencing, nervous system healing. Whatever it is, ask. Get a feel if they know about the technique that's been helpful to you and what they have to say about it. It's fashionable these days to call everything trauma-informed. But remember, this means completely different things to different people. It's not clearly defined. It doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of whether whatever they're offering is going to help you. And anyway, no matter how closely aligned with someone you are philosophically, the fact is the person who is going to have to step in and decide if this is a fit is you. So the third thing to learn about a prospective therapist is, is their knowledge from professional education, personal experience, or some of both? This is a personal question, but if it's important to you, and it is an important thing for many people in the crappy childhood fairy community, you can ask if they had their own experiences of trauma, and you can ask what they found helpful for their own healing. Now, when you're discussing this with them, try to be open to hearing with both your head and your heart, if you know what I mean. Get a feel for whether you agree with them intellectually, but also if you feel affinity with them. They don't have to be just like you, but a lot of us here, not everyone, but many of us feel extra comfortable with people who have experienced CPTSD and come out on the other side, all right? The fourth thing that you will want to ask is how long they think it will take until you start feeling better. Now, I know this isn't a fair question because no one knows the answer for any one person. But if all they have for you is platitudes about every person being different or healing is a long journey, they may not be the one for you. So you want to look for people who can address not just long-term healing, but the immediate need that everyone seeking therapy has to get some relief from symptoms. And I don't just mean from medication. There are many techniques for calming and self-soothing and self-regulating that, if you ask me, should always be part of treatment. Those are the things I teach, and I encourage you to find someone who understands this and supports it. The fifth thing is look for common sense in their approach. Do they suggest basic things known to help with trauma like exercise and limiting alcohol and sugar and getting your sleep? Or is everything they suggest something a professional has to give you? Is it abstract? Is it intellectual? Adding in common sense strategies for self-healing is just plain smart. And you want someone who makes it part of their recommendations. The sixth thing to learn about them is, will they encourage you to focus on your role in the problems and how to solve them? Or will they be more interested in the ways that other people have hurt you. There are plenty of people out there who want to talk about the hurts and therapists who are willing to listen. But my opinion is this needs to be kept as just part of any approach, not the whole thing. Without a focus on things that you can actually change, talking about the hurts is just a way to delay or avoid the hard work of facing the breadth of the problem. And this is what number seven is about. Do they have ways of working with you that don't always require you to tell your trauma stories? 
This is really important because if you're like me, talking about your traumatic memories can be severely dysregulating to the point of ruining any you know, potential benefit of therapy. So look for people who can suggest ways of working on things that are not all about talking, especially being careful to to let the talk about trauma and the past and other people, you don't want to let that take over the whole hour. They need to have something more specific other than that, is what I'm saying, okay? The seventh thing is, can they keep a visit fairly structured? <laughs> do they go along with whatever you plan to talk about or happen to bring up, or do they have a path to help you follow? That can be so important for dysregulated people it's really helpful to when, you know, your mind is just kind of like, oh, it's like traveling and tumbling like a waterfall through memories and associations to have somebody say, okay, now we're going to do this and help you, you know, get something out of each session. Very good. Number eight, are they tuned in and knowledgeable enough to notice when you're dysregulated? And do they have techniques to pause and help you come back from that so that therapy can continue in a productive way? Right, number nine, are they able to see you beyond any labels or diagnoses that you have in order to really see your unique interests, your strengths, your vulnerabilities? Number 10 is, are they curious? Are they respectful rather than invalidating or dismissive about your opinions and ideas about what's wrong, what you need, what approaches seem useful? You may have learned to tolerate this kind of thought domination in the past, but for your healing, you will want freedom to decide for yourself what is important in your healing, what belongs in it. Now, sometimes things get so hard in life that the most important thing about a therapist is that they can help you right now. They can just like come swoop in and just tell you what to do. There's a time and a place for that, but in the longer term, it's a partnership, isn't it? You know, where they're providing some structure and they're believing you and they're helping you find your answers about the problems that you present. So this is why I always keep the link to BetterHelp, the online therapy service, down in the description section. When you're in crisis, when you feel like you're drowning in grief or hopeless or frantic, when you feel like things are falling apart so fast you don't know how to stop it, there's one sure way to get help. You can try that link. My team is here offering free tools, paid courses, coaching that you can access anytime too for learning our approach to trauma healing and strengthening you know, your knowledge, your perception to help you get free from old patterns and start rebuilding your life. We're good with that, but for a crisis when you're you know, maybe in danger, we want you to have access to professionals. We want you to feel in charge of your healing. So you hear me say this a lot. You have a right to be sovereign over your own process of healing. Don't toss it to chance, just blaming the system or doing whatever you're told, but talking to people and seeking out forms of help and learning by trial and error sometimes, you know, to learn how you tick, to, to try what you think might be helpful and get an experience of that before you decide yes or no if you're going with it. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, Think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.